Hello. Hello. Usually Almost. you get to say good morning, but I get, I to, get say to say good morning. I just, yeah. This is the first time we've sat here with this screen up. I, know. Uh, I, feel, like, I feel like we're at confession. <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to confess to me, Pastor Mark? I'm the pastor. You're oh, oh, I'm sorry. Confess <laughs> this way, man. <laughs> So, anyways. Well, good morning. We're glad that you're here this morning. Um, Usually I get to say good morning, but it's through a screen. So it's nice to see you in the flesh. Um, This is our new series, Pastor 4-on-1, where we answer your questions about life, faith, and Jesus, and theology, Mm -hmm. all different kinds of questions. And um, before we get into kind of those Bible-related topics, we want to just kind of catch up a little bit. Yeah, it's a good chance to do that because I'm up here regularly, but usually it's like right into the message. But we don't got to hear from you too often, Zach. So, um, yeah, we're we're fresh off the Easter weekend. And so before we hear what's happening in Zach's life, I just want to take a minute to to thank Zach. Uh, Some of you will know, but maybe don't. Like Zach is the quarterback of of the Easter weekend that we just had. There are so many wonderful volunteers and people who are involved in it. Um, But Zach, for, for weeks probably months, was uh, putting pieces in place. And uh, can, you, can you join me in thanking Zach for his efforts this past weekend? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're truly blessed by, uh, by your, your work that you put in, so thank you for that. Mm-hmm. But uh, we are fresh off the Easter weekend, which is in, in ministry life sort of a transitional time as we start to look, okay, what's next, what's coming up. And we got a few months ahead of us still, but my mind is already on summer. Uh, and with summer comes, well, Typically weddings, <laughs> so marriage prep season has already started. There's a couple of couples that Nadine and I are walking with as they prepare for a wedding and trying to navigate COVID during that. It, 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 it's hard uh, to plan a wedding. It's really hard to plan a wedding during COVID. That's, uh, that's another whole thing. Right, Zach? It's true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's very true. If, I know Mark knows, but for those of you who don't know, I am getting married this summer, and so yeah. there is, it is very difficult. That's right. Yeah, and you've never put your fiancé on the spot, so I'm not sure if you're going to do that now or not. No. But she is sitting in the back. She's sitting so. in the back. She's tall and blonde and beautiful. So we'll, leave and... It, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, what else is new with you, Zach? Anything else? What going else on? is new? I'm selling my house yep. this week, so uh, shameless plug, I am selling my house. So if you'd like to purchase a lovely triplex in the Seacord area, yep. you know who to call. Come talk to Zach. He goes yeah. on the market Wednesday, right? Um, hopefully by the end of the week. End of the week. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Yeah, we can help you out with that. Yeah. Fantastic. Good. Anything else with you? Uh, you? You know, quickly with the family, um, like a lot of people work from home a fair bit. Uh, we yep. bought a house with an office intentionally so that I could work from home to work on sermons and stuff, but Nadine's been using it for the most part because she, uh, she works for AHS, and so most of her time is is at home. Um, so I still come to the office, but we get to use the office that way. Um, daughter Kaylina next week finishes up her uh, program that she's been doing. Um, she'll be finishing with a, uh, her program in, if I get this correct, um, uh, teacher's assistance to children with special needs. So she's finishing that. And she's, she's looking for a job <laughs> to do that. Um, she also is single and would like to be on the marriage <laughs> side of things. So um, there's that. <laughs> so, we're selling uh, houses up here. We're selling we're houses selling all looking for work. Getting our kids out of the house. Yeah, all sorts of things. Um, yeah, you know, Sam's actually finishing his program on pre-elect. He's going to be an electrician, so he's finishing his pre-apprentice electrical program this week as well. Uh, the, probably the, the, you know, kind of the biggest thing that's happened recently is uh, about a week and a half ago, we finally had to take the step of putting our, our dog to sleep, uh, yeah. Bailey, who we had for about 17 years. 
So that's been uh, a journey for the family the last little while. That's kind of what's happening with us. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, way to end on a downer there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's that, though. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's good. That kind of leads us to our first question, though. It does. Yeah, it does. So, uh, so to get to our first question, this week for Pastor 4 and 1, uh, we are talking about pets. And mm-hmm. conveniently enough, uh, we actually talked about it in our pre-service with Andrew as well. And that question is, um, will there be pets in heaven? Will there be pets in heaven? Some people have probably asked this question. Um, and I think a lot of us probably have pets or have had pets. And we think of them as members of the family. And we can't imagine heaven without them. Now, there are also those of us who have allergies who can imagine heaven without pets at all. So anybody have a dog allergies? Yep, so, so, no, you know, so if there were no dogs in heaven, that would work out. Good news, there's no allergies in heaven. So you can finally have that dog maybe you've always wanted. Anybody have cat allergies? Yeah, I got those too. You know what, there's no allergies in heaven, but there's good news. There's no cats in heaven either because they're just evil. Right? But, <laughs> yeah. so, so that's my answer to that one. Dogs, yes, cats, no. Okay, no. clearly a dog person, not a cat person. <laughs> well, Maybe we'll go a little further with that than that one. Uh, Before I answer this question in a little bit more of a theological (laughs) perspective, a lot of these questions we're talking about to do with heaven and hell, there are some things that that the scripture's clear on, but a lot of things that we just need to kind of, uh, you know, speculate a little bit, grab the information available from scripture, and and put together the uh, best systematic, reasonable answer that we can. So there's a degree of speculation to some of these, and this this is kind of one of them. Always want to keep our answers within the bounds of scripture, though, is is the goal. So here's here's why I think we would address that one, is seeing what the Bible has to say about this one. When we talk about heaven, probably our, our most comprehensive view of heaven comes from the, the book of Revelation. It's not the only place by any means, but there's a very comprehensive view of some of the things that we do know. In particular, Revelation 21 and 22, chapters 21 and 22. Now, that's the very final chapters of the Bible, but those actually mirror in theme the very first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, where we see God's original creation. Now in Genesis, we have the establishment and the creation of God's perfect order, and then in Revelation, we have the restoration of God's perfect order and his, his perfect plan. Now, Revelation doesn't mention any animals, but Genesis certainly does. And so we can see from that original plan of perfect order that he had created, there was a design and a will to have creatures upon the land and upon the seas. And since that description exists in its perfection, you know, it stands to reason there that if that was the perfect original order, that it would also exist with some of the same aspects in the new restored order that would happen. So I think it's reasonable to believe that there will be animals in heaven. This is further supported, uh, for example, book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is given a vision of heaven, and he uses, and he says this in Isaiah 11:6. He says, "The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and little children will lead them." Now, I think we can extrapolate two points of application from this. Number one, there's a bit of a literal side to it where there's a description of animals clearly here. So if if Isaiah is seeing a vision of heaven, he's seeing a vision of these animals here in a literal sense. But there's also a metaphoric sense. And the metaphor that is behind this this verse and this vision, which is probably the primary reason in which it was given to him, is it's trying to communicate this idea that in the new creation, in, in heaven, there's no more death. 
If there's no more death, there's no more predators. And, and that's where that final line comes in. If there not being any more death, that means that children are not in danger. Children don't have to live in fear of, you know, lions and wolves and leopards and things like that. So, based upon that, we can actually not only assume that there will be pets in heaven, but the definition of pet actually is expanded. If there's no predators, therefore no fear, mm. and a child can, can lead them out. So... So you could have any kind of, not just hamsters or dogs or cats. Hamster, like, well, there's no cats. But, but yeah, there's dogs, no cats, sorry. We've already established that. Right. Zach, keep up with it. Sorry, me. sorry. So, <laughs> yeah. Dogs, hamsters, goldfish, yeah. Yeah. But what else could you have? What else could, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Maybe people online want to type in the chat box what uh, Yeah, what would you, what what would would you have, have, Mark? I would, um, let's have a whale. Why not? A whale. <laughs> a whale. Like a big blue whale. Yeah. Where are you going to put this whale? I will have a large swimming pool. Okay. <laughs> in my backyard. <laughs> How about that? How about you, Zach? Uh, I don't know. I'm a tall guy. Maybe a giraffe. A giraffe. Competition. I need a big house then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, tall ceilings. Yeah. <laughs> tall ceilings for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think the expansion of the definition of it. Now, here's, here's the real question I think it boils down to. The bigger question is, will Bailey be in heaven? Mm. Like, like, will our dog Bailey be in heaven? There's no indication uh, in Scripture that specific pets, specific animals will be kind of recreated and therefore in heaven with us. But here's the thing. I don't think it's beyond the realm of God's power nor his love to make that possible. So uh, personally, I don't believe specific animals will be there, but animals will be there. However, if you want to believe that, you know, little Sparky's going to be waiting for you, there's probably no harm in that. I mm-hmm. just don't want you to be disappointed. Yeah. So. That's good. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you talk about having a big pool. I talk about having a big house. Big house, big pools. Yeah. yeah. Um, which speaks to just kind of the rewards that are potential right. in heaven. And so um, the next question is, will we receive rewards when we get mm. to heaven? So we can put that whale in that pool. Yes. Will we receive rewards when we get to heaven? I, I wanted to address this one early in Pastor 411 because uh, a few weeks ago, if you're watching our series on grace, I, I spoke about a parable of the workers in the vineyard. And if you remember that parable, that the, worker go, uh, the owner of the vineyard goes out and he brings different people to work for him in the vineyard throughout the course of an entire day. And at the end of the day, he gives them the same pay. He gives each of them one denarii. And, and that was symbolic of the same grace of God that God offers to all people, that what we receive from God in terms of his grace is not based upon our efforts, our work, sort of how long and how hard each of us labored. Mm-hmm. Rather, the grace that we receive, because it's not earned, is based upon the love and the mercy of the owner. And therefore, everybody receives the same grace, meaning that we receive the same means of access and entrance into heaven. That was the parable from a few weeks back. I invite you to go listen to those or watch it online if you missed that one or want a refresher. But it's only half the story. Because uh, if we read just a couple verses before that parable, the disciples are asking Jesus, well, what about us? What, what about when we get to heaven? And Jesus promises them there in the preface to this parable that at the renewal of all things, so this being when they enter into eternity, at the renewal of all things that the disciples will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Sitting on 12 thrones and judging 12 tribes, to me, sounds like a reward. It sounds like a unique position that they will hold. And so the Bible is clear on this, that all of us receive the same grace. Because that is not something we earn. That is not something that we deserve. It is something that is gifted to us. But there are different rewards and experiences that people will have. 
Now, let's, let's look to Scripture to see how this plays out. One of the passages we can look at is in 2 Corinthians excuse me, chapter 5, where Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things that we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, not just here, but in other letters of Paul, he insists that believers, so those who are followers of Christ in this life, who have received his grace and therefore receive entrance into heaven, will also additionally appear before the judgment seat of Jesus, sometimes referred to as the Bema seat. Anyone heard of that phrase, Bema seat, before? Uh, B-E-M-A. You can look that up later. So the Bema seat is like this tribunal exclusively for believers, mm. where there is an evaluation of the works that were done on earth. Now, this isn't... This isn't an examination of salvation. Remember, this is for believers only. Salvation is not something we earn or achieve. And, and as we see in this verse, very clearly, Paul's speaking here about works. But we know salvation is not by works. So that's not what this is. This is an assessment of what each person has done while in the body, meaning while they have come to faith. And they will be rewarded accordingly. The word reward here also means they will get what's coming to them. Now, that can go two ways, yeah, right? right? You will be rewarded. You will get what you deserve. You will get what's coming to you, whether good or bad. Yeah. Okay? So, so just because we do good works doesn't right. mean we get salvation right. necessarily. Um, but God still cares about those good works. Yeah, and that's the important part of this. Is sometimes, and this is the danger of, of people who simply have a cheap grace theology, meaning, well, I prayed a prayer or I truly believe in my heart, therefore I'm good to go so I can just go live like hell and still get into heaven. That's not completely devoid of some, you know, it's messed up, but it's not completely devoid of some degree of truth, but, but it flies in the face of what Jesus is, and Paul is saying here, which is your works do matter. Yeah. It does matter what you do with your life. Yeah. And, and he continues to unpack that for us a bit. Because Paul and Jesus both taught on this. And, and, and they taught that the basis of our life, the foundation of our lives, is to be Jesus. That is the foundation of our entrance to heaven. That is the foundation of our salvation. It is also meant to be the purpose, the source, and the motivation for everything that we do in life is to build a life upon a foundation of Jesus Christ, built with the things, the, 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 the teachings, the values, the, uh, the example, the lessons of Jesus. is like the house we're to build on top of the foundation of Christ. And Paul, in his first letter to Corinthians, he, he talked about this way. He said, if anyone builds on this foundation, this foundation being Jesus, using gold, silver, costly stones, so, so good, valuable, solid materials... Or, if they build using wood, hay, or straw, questionable materials, their work will be shown for what it is. Because on the day, on the day, that's that Bema Seat Judgment Day, it will be brought to light. It will be revealed with fire, and that fire will test the quality of each person's work. And then Paul continues in the next verse. He says, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but will be saved, even though it was only as one escaping through the flames. Now notice here that even those who have their deeds consumed by the fire, those who have deeds that do not stand the test, it says here they will still be saved because this judgment's not about salvation. 
Right. It's not about salvation. Yeah. This is about assessing and rewarding according to the works that were done for Jesus or the lack thereof. This means, and this is, this is challenging, but here, here's the warning, the caution that's inherent to this passage. It means that there are some people who will get into heaven by the skin of their teeth. They will get in simply because of a genuine, authentic belief and acceptance of God's mercy and grace, and that is all that they have going for them. But then all of their works will go through this beam of seat judgment, and they will stand before the king bare and ashamed with nothing. That is rough. That's rough, yeah. right? That's rough. Yeah. I, don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that guy. No. No. A- absolutely not. Yeah. So when we approach that moment, mm-hmm. how are our deeds, our choices, our acts, how is that weighed? Right. So how do we know? Yeah. 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 How do we, we want to build the gold and the silver and the costly that we want to build with those sorts of things? Right. Well, again, we can look to Scripture. There's sort of three categories. I'll go through these quickly. Three categories in which we can examine sort of our lives and what we're building with. The first one, Jesus is, is clear that the content of our work will be examined. This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, where it says, We will be rewarded for what each person has done. Now, if a person has a genuine belief in Christ and, and, and has received uh, his grace and forgiveness, uh, shows up to church every Sunday for once a week, but that's kind of the sum total of their experience. It's not that they don't have a genuine belief, it's just that for the most part, you know, they wake up and live their lives for themselves mm-hmm. every single day. No investment in God, building that relationship with God, no investment in caring for others. The day will come when what they have each done, according to Matthew 16, 27, will lead to a day of regret that they'll mm-hmm. have. And Jesus taught about this, and, and, and Jesus' experience showed us a different and a better way. If you look at the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, it's so amazing how Jesus is always leaning towards the outcast, towards the lost, towards the sinful, towards those who are rejected. Anybody that society or that the religious elite would classify as the other, Jesus leaned towards that person. It wasn't because he was trying to affirm it so that all things are, are good for everybody. It wasn't like he was affirming all things for all people. No. He was leaning towards them because he would look at them and see that this is a person, regardless of their activity, of their, of their beliefs, their worldviews, this is a person who was created in the image of God. This is a person who had value, who, who, who God wanted to show love to, and that God had a better plan for than they were currently experiencing. And so he would lean towards them, not to affirm the, the things that were contrary to God's will in their life that they were doing, but to, to show them value and love so that a door would open so that he could point them towards the way of hope. That's sort of the example in the teachings we see and the instructions that were given in terms of how we you know, are, are to choose to live our lives. And so it really comes down to what we're going to focus on. You know, sometimes we focus so much upon the things that we shouldn't be doing. But the folks, there are so many more things listed in the Bible that we should be doing. And, and those are things that are going to be measured. It's not enough to just not do bad things. <laughs> Jesus clearly, through example and teaching, he's like, you got to go do some stuff too for the furtherance of my kingdom, to advance my name, to show people that they have value and love in the eyes of God. Yeah. Um, so I could go on about yeah. that. But no, you know, I think Content. just to add a little bit, I think it's important because there's this conception sometimes of Christianity that's very rule-based, don't right. do this, don't do that. Yeah. But there's so much that we can do. Absolutely. There's, there's more that we can do. And if you're busy doing the things that we can do, you probably haven't got time to do the things you shouldn't be doing. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so that's one way to 
one way to navigate that. But, but there are many things. There's so many teachings about, about caring for the poor, for the, for the oppressed, um, befriending those who are outcasts, not for personal gain, but, but simply because they have value and merit. Uh, caring for the orphan and the widow. Um, you, know, we don't, you know, we don't talk about orphans and widows as much today's culture, but I honestly believe that the modern-day equivalent to the orphan and the widow is, is the single-parent home. That's essentially the modern-day equivalent of orphans and widows that, that, that are so close to God's heart that he wants us to be serving and caring for. So, but then also, uh, just, just sharing, you know, sharing the word of God and uh, sharing it in word and in deed. So lots that we could be doing. Uh, I want to move on to the second one, though, which is not just what we do, but it's also what we say. Matthew twelve thirty six also talks about how each of us will give an account for all of the empty words that are spoken. Now, this is a tough one, I think, for all of us to some degree, because I'm probably not alone here. Here's that, that confession time. Yeah. Zach, sometimes I have allowed inside words to come out, ah. and they have not been kind. <laughs> I think it we're happens, all guilty. Though. It happens. We have those inside thoughts that suddenly come outside words, yeah. and they sometimes should stay inside. Yeah. Yeah, we're all guilty of, of these sort of empty words that we, we put out into the world. Uh, and, and the Bible directs us on this. Ephesians 4 tells us that no unwholesome talk, that, that nothing of that nature should come out of our mouths, only what is helpful for building up. Now, you know, what is, what is unwholesome talk? Um, lots of things. Um, swearing, slandering, lying, uh, gossiping, uh, in using racial terms. All of these sorts of, of, of negative speech um, have one purpose behind them, to tear down. There's no reason to use any of that sort of language or that sort of perspective. The only goal there is to bring down, to put the self higher than another person or to tear a person down. That's, right. that's what Scripture is talking negatively about. But at the same time, uh, we need to be speaking positive words. Mm-hmm. And, and we all know the difference. We all know that words matter. Right? We know that when somebody speaks poorly of us, when they attack us, when we're bullied, uh, we know that feeling versus uh, when somebody is encouraging us, when somebody is celebrating us, even when somebody is rebuking us but doing it in love because they care about us. We can receive that. We know that feeling uh, as opposed to the, to the negative one. And so not only our actions but also the words that we speak are part of this examination. Mm-hmm. And then the third one, really quickly, as we start to wrap up this question, uh, is our motives. Uh, again, in, ba- in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, Jesus teaches on this, and, and he gives the example, a negative example, of the Pharisees. Uh, and, and a passage that's familiar to many, where he says, don't practice your, your, your righteous deeds in front of other people, so that all the people get to see them. If you do, you will not receive a reward from your Father in heaven. Why? Because you've already got your reward. All the people that you're doing these good deeds in front of, that that was the motivation of your heart, they're already looking favorably upon you, so you've received your reward. Don't, don't expect another one when we get to heaven. And so considering uh, our motivations behind what we do and behind the words that we speak, the, the answer to the question is, is why do we do what we do? Do we do it for selfish personal edification? Or do we do these things for the purpose of revealing God, of, of showing his glory and his love to others in the world around us? The same activity can be done with two completely different motivations behind it. One to glorify God and one to, to glorify ourselves. 
Now, it's not wrong to feel good for doing things. That's not what this is about. That's natural. Yeah. And that's appropriate to feel good for doing good things. But we all know when we're motivated by that, when that's why we're doing a particular activity. Uh, you know, for example, it's one thing to go, to go sort food at the food bank. It's another thing to sort food at the food bank and then lean against the stack of food and get a picture of yourself against the food to post on Facebook. Right. It's one thing to serve a meal to somebody at an inner city church. It's another thing to pose with that person pointing at the plate that you just served them. Yeah. And I use those examples because I've actually seen those on Facebook. And, and they kind of bug me a little bit because it, it, it draws the question of what's your motivation for serving? Was it really about that person? Was it really about God's command to go serve and care for the poor and the oppressed? Or was it about you just wanting to have selfie? Right. So. Yeah. In whose best interest? In whose best right. interest. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, there is... There is this bema seat judgment that takes place. Our actions do matter in terms of what we do, what we say, and why we do them. Yeah. Okay. So, so in summary, we'll sum it all up. If you're a believer of Jesus Christ, you will face this judgment. Uh, and it will determine, to some degree, the quality and the experience of life that you have in the new kingdom. Maybe even positions like the disciples who were told they would have 12 thrones over the 12 tribes. Um, now, there are some who will serve their whole lives, who will sacrifice much. There are some who will be called to be teachers and preachers. There will be some who will give all. They will live their entire lives under persecution because of geographically where they live. There will be some who will be called to be global missionaries, who will leave all of the comforts, all of the friends, all of their families that are here in the Western world and be shipped off to somewhere else in the world and have to leave all that behind. There will even be those who will give the ultimate price, who will be martyrs for the name of Jesus Christ. All of these people and more will be rewarded in the life to come for what they endured, for their acts, their words, motivations, for what happened in this world. And when we see these martyrs and these missionaries and these people under persecution receiving their rewards, I believe we will all look upon that and say that they are worthy of what they receive. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. How are we doing? Are we with us? Good? Give us a nod. All right, if you're online, make sure to hit that little <laughs> heart button. Yep. All right, stay with us. We're good. Yep. All right, we're going to jump to our next question. Sure. Um, this is our fourth a, question this, of the day. This is a tough one, but it's one that came in I thought it was worth yeah. tackling. No, this yeah. is a good one for sure. So that question is, what is the destiny of people who lack the capacity to accept the gospel? Right. So uh, this is a hard question mm-hmm. because this primarily relates to two categories of people here. We're not talking about people who just who just chose not to investigate or look into, weren't bothered to look into the things of God. What we're really talking about here are, and there could be more, but primarily two categories of people. One, um, disabled adults who do not have the cognitive capacity um, to understand the gospel, but also, in a similar fashion, uh, children. Children who who just tragically pass way too early Mm -hmm. uh, in life to have ever heard yet comprehend the, um, the gospel. So when, when we think about these people, our hearts immediately know the answer. Our hearts are like, they're in heaven. That's the right thing to have happen. And, and, and yes, we, you know, our hearts lead us towards that. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just let the cat out of the bag here. That's what I believe as well. But we, we can't just allow our hearts to be the, the guiding force or the reason behind that. We, we also need to be able to support where we land on this theologically. So let's, uh, you know, 
just to rest assured that's where I'm going to land <laughs> on this one, let me explain theologically how I think we get there. Now, we get there by, first of all, making sure that our, whatever answer we come up with does not contradict. This has to be a systematic theology that we follow for this. So it cannot contradict the core doctrine of salvation. And part of that core doctrine of salvation is that all people, regardless of who they are or, or, or what they're born with or without, all people are born in a need of spiritual regeneration. Meaning all of us are born as humans with a sinful nature we inherited through Adam. And we're born into this condition that we are not able to overcome ourselves, and we're not able to save ourselves, and therefore all of us are in need of a Savior. And God has made himself known to people throughout history, throughout time, through, through creation, through events in their lives, through the revealing of Jesus, his teachings, his examples, through, through his people who go out and do good works and, and, and say the things they should be saying to, to reveal God's love. God has made himself known. And this is essentially what Romans 1.20 is about, where it says, for since creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been seen clearly, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So, that's the reality for all of us, that God has made himself known. He has been pursuing us, revealing himself to us. All people have had an opportunity to see the reality of God, to move further towards his revelation, to come to an understanding of the offer made available to us through Jesus Christ. Those who choose to reject it, those who choose to not bother with the examination, Mm -hmm. those who choose to just choose otherwise, they are without excuse because God has done his part to make it known to them. But it begs the question, what if a person lacks the ability, not, not the choice or the, you know, or the avoidance right. of the gospel, what if they just simply purely, genuinely lack the ability to, to see, to understand, to accept or reject? Right. For example, what if a child or a person is too young? to know right from wrong? What if they have an impairment, such as, you know, as we mentioned, an, an adult with the cognitive abilities of a child? What in that case, what happens? Mm-hmm. And this is, obviously, this is real-life stuff. The first time I came across this question, it was there's a lead pastor I served under who, who had an adult son that was in assisted living situations because he was an adult who had cognitive impairments to the point where he had about the mental capacity of, of like a six or seven-year-old sort of yeah. thing. I, I can't exactly, but it was, it was young. Right. And, and so this was a real-life question for him and his family. And, and, and he, he wrote a master's-level uh, paper on, on, on this topic. Uh, it's the first time I, I came across it. So when we think about these situations, we see that there are um, examples in the Bible, such as Isaiah 7.16 talks about a boy who did not know enough was not basically old enough to reject wrong and to choose right. And so there are some, some passages that talk about uh, some starting to have a bit of a, a distinction between, between these. And it kind of begs the question, does God hold a person accountable for the message that they're unable, uh, not couldn't be bothered, again, we've got to clarify that, it's not about they couldn't be bothered to understand, it means they're unable to understand it. You know, in the Catholic tradition, or the uh, Christian tradition falls to two camps on this, in the Catholic faith, uh, this is one of the reasons that they baptize infants. Right. 
is because they believe in this, you know, all people are born with a sin nature that needs to be resolved somehow. A child cannot come to a personal profession or cannot choose to do these things, and so they have infant baptism. Where in that act of baptism, it is believed that they are set free from that sin nature and granted the gift of grace in that. And, you know, taking a step further, an unbaptized child in that tradition would either go to hell or to purgatory for a time before being admitted to heaven. Now, other traditions in the, in the Christian faith, uh, evangelicals in particular, uh, the, the kind of the camps that we find ourselves in, believe that God grants grace to those who are incapable of understanding, therefore incapable of responding. And that is in keeping with the grace, truth, and love of Jesus. Uh, there's not a lot of scriptural support for it, but the best one, best verse that's pointed to for this uh, matches the words of King David. Where in 2 Samuel 12, uh, David has had a son with Bathsheba, uh, and that son passes. Now, David is mourning over the loss of his son, and then we find these words in, in 2 Samuel 12, 23. He goes, why should I go on fasting? Why should I go on mourning over the loss of the son? Can I bring him back? No, but I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, how can David go to his son is the question that's here. Well, the answer is, is that God's grace was upon this son, and so therefore his son is in heaven, and David will one day too pass into the next life and see him in heaven. Uh, which all points to this concept, basically, what we're building towards is what's referred to as an age of accountability, uh, where if a person is unable to discern right and wrong, um, whether because they're you know, an infant or something like that, yep. Uh, or if it's an adult who just doesn't have the cognitive capacity that they're under grace until they are able. So it's not a chronological age. It's, it's more of a, a, a cognitive age uh, that a child or uh, an adult with an impairment um, would still be under the grace of God. Right. I believe. Interesting. That's yeah. a, it's a good question because I think a lot of people ask that. Like we're all affected in one way or another. By that question of, you know, a, a child that passes or, yeah. you know, an adult with a, a mental capacity of a child. Yeah. 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 Uh, these are real life things that happen in the world around us on yeah. a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Was, okay. So I'll talk about where these people are going. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, why don't you bring us into our next question here? Sure. Yeah. So uh, we got two more here that are somewhat related as we... Uh, for our final two questions here today. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, uh, this one came in. At first it came in and I, I kind of set it aside, but I thought, no, no, we're going to answer this one and we're going to answer the opposite of it in a second here. Yep. I think it would be a good way to, to start off faster, 411. So here's the question. Where is hell? Yep. Where is hell located? Um, we talk, you know, <clears throat> talk about it, believe in, in a place called hell, but mm-hmm. where is it? Uh, well, a couple of things we'll, we'll talk about on this one. Number one, let's just establish right off the bat, hell's a real place. Okay? It's fallen out of popularity lately to talk about hell. Um, some people try to theologically navigate around hell. Um, I and we here at West Meadows don't. Uh, it's a real place, and it's a place you really don't want to go to. It is a place of eternal state of punishment for the wicked. Uh, and regardless of where it is, you don't want to go there. Okay. Now, later in the series, we're going to definitely get into more details as to what is it like and uh, major views on how God punishes people in the midst of, of this, but we'll save it for another week. Today, we're going to focus upon the location, sort of where is it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, let's just start off by saying we honestly don't know. 
Like, like this is not something where there's a very clear, specific explanation in Scripture for us. We don't know. But there is uh, a lot of speculation, obviously, and the speculation ends up in three primary views, um, none of which are fully satisfying. I'll just acknowledge that. But um, here's sort of really quickly the three primary views. Number one uh, is a view that hell is at the center of the earth. Okay? Uh, and so this comes from, from some literal reading of some biblical language. For example, when the Bible talks about Sheol, Hades, uh, Gehenna, uh, these, in reference to hell, these are all words that are, can be translated the pit, um, the grave, or in the ground. So they all have this kind of downward into the earth right. kind of idea to them. And so this is partially where this, this idea emerges from. For example, in Luke 10, 15, where Jesus is saying, uh, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Like, Hades is directionally down. Mm. Now, I don't think what Jesus is doing here is giving them a map. He's not really giving them a map, a direction to go, you know, go south. No, I don't mean south towards Jerusalem. I mean south into the earth. Mm. I don't think he's trying to give a map here necessarily. As much as he's trying to talk about condemnation, about a person, a people, a city being brought low, being kind of humbled right. and condemned is more of what's being taken place here as opposed to a geographical direction. So, but that's one, one view is that it's in the center of the earth, maybe because the core of the earth is, is hot. Rotten. Magma, I guess, yeah. or whatever it is. It's hot and burning, so it kind of matches there a bit too. Uh, a second view uh, is that the earth itself will become hell. Is that at the end of, uh, at the end of judgment and whatnot, um, that the earth itself will become a lake of fire. Uh, and the Bible speaks of, of the earth being destroyed by fire, for example, in 2 Peter 3.10, where it says, The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything uh, done in it will be laid down bear. So that, you know, you can kind of get a bit of the imaging mm -hmm. that happens from there. We also see in Revelation 20 where Satan and his followers and all of those whose names are not written in the book of life are cast into this lake of fire. And so the theory behind this is that the earth will become essentially this burning sphere of torment for the ungodly. Mm. Um, and then there's a third, a third view. Uh, and, and this one's a little more common, but I don't think it, it is any more valid than, than the other ones. And essentially that, that hell is kind of out there, almost like in, in outer space. Sometimes people think, they look at black holes, and they think, well, that's kind of a, a portal to another place and, and, and dimension, whatever that yeah. term means. I'm not an astrophysicist. Um, but that's sort of the gateway, and that's the whole purpose of, of those sorts of things. Also because black holes are associated with, uh, with heat and pressure in the absence of light. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's a way of saying that, that hell exists on a different spatial plane from us than, than we currently find ourselves, meaning it doesn't really have a geographical location as we would we'd understand. It. It's kind of what's behind that. Mm -hmm. and, and this catches some, uh, some popularity, especially in the late 70s. Um, Disney actually released a movie called The Black Hole. Uh, has anyone ever seen that movie, The Black Hole? No. You got Google, One person if you got Disney Plus, maybe it's, I haven't looked. Maybe it's yeah. on Disney Plus. <laughs> uh, but basically, at the end of the movie, all the characters pass through a black hole, and, and the villain finds himself in a place of fiery torment where all the other characters are in, like, disembodied bliss. Right. So um, I don't know if we want to get our theology from Disney, but, you know, no. <laughs> it, uh, it you know, kind of matched the movie yeah. that they brought out at the time. Yeah. So. Probably not the best, yeah. Yeah, I mean, think, like, I'm getting married, so I'm not going to take marriage tips from Beauty and the Beast. You know? Right, yeah, yes. 
Yeah, Disney doesn't get everything right. No. <laughs> Sony's not no. much right. So, uh, so in summary, we're not told geographically kind of where it is, but we do know it's a literal place. And here's what we do know. It, it is a literal place. Uh, it's spoken of 162 times in the New Testament. 70 of those are by Jesus himself. So almost half the times that it's discussed, Jesus himself is the one talking about hell. And it's always in a sense of warning. And the traditional view of it, which we'll get more into in the weeks ahead, the traditional view of it is that it's a place, wherever that may be, um, I don't think it's, it's, I don't believe it's going to be the earth, because we'll get into that in the next answer. Mm-hmm. Um, wherever it may be, it is a place of eternal conscious torment, is the kind of orthodox traditional view of what hell is. Um, so, if that was on a brochure, you probably wouldn't sign up for the trip. So, you do not want to go to hell. Yeah. Right. Yeah, don't want to be that guy. Wherever it may be. Either. Right. Yeah. I don't know about you. I mean, you, you mentioned this at the beginning. Hell mm-hmm. can kind of be this, like, we don't talk about that topic, but it's yeah. important to talk about. It, yeah. You know? Yeah, we're going to talk about it more in the weeks ahead. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, so then conversely. Yeah. Where's heaven? Where's heaven located then is the obvious next question. Yeah. So we'll cover this one quickly as we wrap up here. Uh, as mentioned, hell has a lot of downward language, uh, lots of language that way. Well, heaven has kind of the similar thing, mm-hmm. uh, is that heaven is up or, or that God comes down from heaven, meaning you know, heaven must be, must be higher. Right. Uh, we also see this in the, in the ascension of Jesus as Jesus was taken up before their eyes. Uh, Revelation 4, Jesus says, come up here. So there's a lot of language, again, that, that heaven is kind of up as opposed to hell being down. Right. Um, you know, there was a literal ascension of Christ that happened going up, but, but I think the primary meaning behind that, again, was not a road map to where the geographical location of heaven was as much as to be exemplifying that Jesus was, was exalted. That, right. that he was raised up, that he, that he ascended into heaven, that he was uh, being exalted there, not necessarily giving us a geography lesson. So, but there is a concept in the Bible that heaven is a place where, where angels and saints and God exist in space and time. Um, and, and we see some of this in Scripture as well. For example, in, uh, when Solomon was dedicating the temple of God, which was to be God's earthly dwelling place, in 2 Kings 8, he, he said this. He said, but will God really dwell on earth? So again, a dwelling place is a common concept. And he goes, no, like the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain him, how much less the temple that I have built. And then the psalmist in Nehemiah also speak of this language about a, a highest heavens, uh, being where heaven is, where God exists in the highest heavens. Now, in the New Testament, this concept of highest heavens isn't referred to very much at all. But it does show up with a different phrasing, same concept, different phrasing, which you know, is actually helpful, but confusing at first, so I'll, I'll explain it here. And it shows itself up in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, I know a guy, speaking of himself, right. I know a guy in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. So he knows a guy. But he, not, not the boat builder, Noah. Right. He just, he, the other I guy. know a guy. Yeah. Speaking of himself. That's a dad joke. You can use it on your kids later when you get them. Yeah. So what is the third heaven idea? Well, the concept here is the first heaven is like the sky and the atmosphere. It's just the world around us. The, the second heaven would be like space where stars and planets exist. And then there's this third heaven, that the highest heaven is kind of what he's referring to here um, that we find in the Old Testament. Now, 
this is um, understood not so much, again, as, as a location we go to, like geographically, like, like Hawaii is paradise. Why can't Hawaii be heaven? <laughs> uh, again, not talking about that. Again, it's more of this kind of a different plane of existence, essentially. Um, it's probably the best way to understand it for today as mm-hmm. we just kind of start getting into this uh, in terms of the day in which we live right now that is this realm of heaven. Um, but probably the best answer to where is heaven located, and it might feel like I'm avoiding the question, but I think it's the best answer, is to say that, that heaven is wherever God is, is where heaven is. Because all the examples we find in Scripture that talk about heaven, it's where God is. It's where God dwells. And so heaven is where God is. And this can make God feel, heaven feel a little distant and transcendent, like there, there's just a gap between us and him in this particular time and place. And that's actually a common view that exists for, for pretty much all, all religious faiths and traditions and, and gods, is that there's a, a distinction, a transcendence to God and then an imminence to people. Mm. But this is the beauty of, of the Christian message as well, is that Jesus came to announce the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And so while there is a transcendent aspect that is unknowable fully to us at this point as to where heaven is located, where it actually is, Jesus came to say in in, in Matthew 4, 17, he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Meaning it isn't just transcendent that God and his kingdom values and virtues and promises have started to arrive and be available to us now, meaning God can be with us now. He was with us in the person of Christ, and following the death and resurrection of Christ and the ascension, he is with us now in spirit. So God is still with us, and heaven is where God is. And this helps us understand a bit of what you may have heard before is the idea of the kingdom now, but the kingdom not yet that, that exists, where now... If we, will prof- if we will confess our sins and receive the forgiveness of God's grace into our lives, right here and now, in this moment and in this place, we can become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and we can begin living kingdom life even in this time and place in which we are right now. So many of Jesus' teachings are, are about that very thing. Uh, in, in the coming weeks, we're going to do a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is not so much about how to get into the kingdom of heaven as much as it is about how to live the kingdom now, of heaven now. Right. Uh, it's one of the main reasons that, that we're given the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's about kingdom living in this particular time and place. That's the now aspect. But there's a not yet aspect because there's a future promise that is not yet fulfilled. A promise of a new heaven and a new earth. A final state where all who are in Christ will be raised up and will dwell with God, and God will dwell with his people. And in that place, we read in Revelations that there will be no more tears. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain. For all of those things will pass away, and we will only be with him, and he will be with us. So, where's heaven? Heaven is where God is. And God is with us here in this place. Not fully revealed yet. There is a day of full revelation coming still, but we can still live in and as citizens of heaven in the world in which we live now. Yeah, so good. And, I mean, we can celebrate with our cats and dogs up there. Dogs. Hopefully. No, oh, sorry. Dogs, yeah. No, there's no cats, apparently. Yeah, yeah. that's your takeaway for That's today. Mark's gospel, this Mark. <laughs> yeah, the gospel according to Mark. Yeah. 
but not the one in the Bible. Yeah. Good. Well, uh, on that note, I hope that leaves us with a bit of an encouraging sense that, um, that, that heaven is not just a future one day, yeah. maybe hopefully kind of thing, but it can be a, a present, imminent, and very real thing in which we live right here today and now for those who have received Christ into their lives. He dwells within us. You know, the Bible talks about how we are holy temples in which God can live. And just as Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication for the temple that he had built and said, can God really dwell upon, among people in a building? The answer today is, is no, but he can dwell among his people within his people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so why don't we just, just pause and, and pray for that? I know you've got to go jump on the drum kit here. So uh, why don't I just pray for us and, and wrap this up while you transition over there. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for this chance today to ask about a variety of questions to do with, with heaven and hell. We, we anticipate in the days ahead we will have more questions come in, that this will spark some thoughts, some conversation, some deeper understanding of, um, of what you would have us to know about this particular topic, as well as other things as well, Father. For those who are uh, learning new things today, who are um, maybe convicted of of what we do with the hours of our days and in our actions and our words and our motivations behind those things. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us in that, that you would help us to live in your grace, to understand uh, your love for us, but also uh, not to a point of passivity, but as a point of encouragement, as a point of animating your love through us and into the world around us. God, for those who might be listening who, who are feeling a conviction that, that heaven is obviously the place that we all want to be, but they do not have a relationship with Christ, I pray, Lord, that in this moment right now, that the spirit that is among us and that is within us would just powerfully speak and to convict into their hearts and that they would surrender to life and say, yes, Jesus, yes, I know that I have done wrong. I know that I have wandered and strayed. I know that I have sinned against you and those around me. I thank you, Lord, that your death upon the cross can pay the price of all those sins. And I want to dwell with you eternally, starting today and into all days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.